0: Welcome back to Eye on the Community, I'm Vicki Pepper. Earlier this month, the California School Boards Association held their annual education conference and trade show, the premier continuing education event for California school boards and the largest education leadership conference in the state. School board members discussed how they navigated the pandemic, the need for learning recovery and student supports, their legislative and policy priorities for 2023, perspectives on the upcoming state budget and what's required from the state to strengthen schools and increase opportunities for students. On the line to tell us more is Troy Flint, Chief Information Officer for the California School Boards Association. Thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. Troy, what's the climate like for school boards right now?
1: So this is a very critical period for school districts and school boards as the stewards of our public schools are under a lot of pressure, but there's also a great opportunity right now to use the disruption of the past couple years as a platform for transforming schools in a way that serves students better. Uh, than they have in recent decades. But in order for that to happen, we have to build on this recent history of investment. We can't retrench now that we appear to be nearing or passing through the end of the pandemic. Otherwise, we'll backslide. And we really need to use this time to redouble our efforts forward education. Schools are engaged with learning recovery. There was a lot of disruption which impacted not only student learning, but also student well-being. The state has actually responded and met the challenge which is not the norm, but we saw an unusually high level of funding and support over the last two years. It's unfortunate it took a global health emergency to get this kind of support for schools that have been lacking for 40 years. But even two years of robust funding in emergency circumstances doesn't compensate for 40 years of underinvestment in California schools. And so we need to look at what's happened the last couple of years as the floor, not the ceiling for what we're willing to invest in our students and continue to provide them with the resources that they need to make up for lost time, and then to address the ongoing challenges we've had in our school, even predating the pandemic.
0: What are school trustees talking about with each other, and what are the concerns of the school
1: boards? Well, first and foremost, academic achievement, overall student achievement. I don't think it's any secret that test scores revealed that there were dramatic decreases in test score performance in reading and English language arts, and then especially in math. And that regression was concentrated most heavily among some of our most disadvantaged groups, low-income students generally, uh, students with disabilities who are in special education programs, and black and brown students particularly. These are groups that for the most part have long-standing struggles. So we're looking at overall student achievement as well as the widening opportunity and achievement gaps, which are seeing certain students fall further behind. So efforts aimed at learning recovery, such as smaller class sizes, what we call high-dose tutoring or really intense, high-volume tutoring. These type of longer school days, summer school, free after-school programs, all these other expanded enrichment opportunities to sort of accelerate and supercharge learning to help aid and facilitate that learning recovery process. That's a big focus. On an operational side, we're looking at staffing shortages, creative methods to try and attract and retain teachers in the profession. And not just teachers, but classified staff as well. Every person who helps a school run, we're seeing deficits in all those areas. So CSBA, as an organization which advocates for our school district, is Looking at legislative solutions to the problem. And then at the district level, our school districts and county offices of education are trying to see what they can do to attract and retain people, whether that's increasing compensation, improving working conditions, attracting career changers from other fields and professions, developing teacher and education academies at their high schools to get kids interested in education and get them off to a start in that career. So when they go to a college they can build on that and then hopefully return to their district, getting more creative about the schools that they recruit from, trying to get more people from diverse backgrounds into the profession. So there are a number of approaches that districts are taking to address the staffing crisis. Another issue that is of a big concern to our school board members and to school districts and county offices of education generally is transitional kindergarten. For those who are unaware, California officially mandated a new grade, which is called transitional kindergarten sort of a bridge between preschool and kindergarten for those kids who aren't old enough to attend the traditional kindergarten because of the age cutoff. And every district in the state now has to provide that. There are special requirements for transitional kindergarten in terms of facilities. You have to have an ensuite bathroom there in the classroom. You have to have a self-contained play yard, which the older kids don't have access to. So there are facilities and buildings and grounds requirements related to this, which of course come with a cost because of new construction and and renovation. So CSBA is advocating for funding from the state level to help districts, especially a lot of the smaller districts or districts in lower income areas that maybe don't have ready access to bond funding to pay for the build out. So they need help from the state and that's a big topic of concern. Student mental health is another area of huge concern. That's been an ongoing issue. So creative programs, as well as more funding from the state to help implement those programs and also to find the staff that are needed to counselors, psychologists, psychiatrists that are needed to run these programs and to provide kids with the mental health support that they need. Another topic. This is sort of an evergreen, but it's a continuing issue that's pressing, is pensions. Right now, about 16% of every dollar that goes to school goes into Calsters, the fund that that pays for teacher pensions. And that doesn't include CalPERS, which is the fund uh, that pays for the pensions of classified staffers, the support staff at school districts. That's probably another uh, few percent. So really, you're talking about one out of about 20% or one out of every $5 that goes into To schools is going to pay for pensions, and that's money that doesn't go directly into the classroom. And these expensive pension agreements, which are skyrocketing in cost every year aren't agreements that were entered into by the local district. These are agreements that the state made and then is putting it on the local districts to pay off. So it's really unfair that the state incurred this burden and it's shuffling it off onto the local districts. And the amount that districts have to pay in, in terms of employer contributions is increasing rapidly every year. So the state needs to live up to its own obligations instead of shunting them off onto local districts and, and defray the cost, pay down some of the employer pension contributions. That, in turn, will free more money at the local level, which can be put into some of these interventions that schools require to help students get up.
0: I'm speaking with Troy Flint, Chief Information Officer for the California School Boards Association. What does the public need to better understand about the role of school boards?
1: In one sense, school boards have a lot of power in that they can create policy, policy which hopefully is designed to accelerate student achievement and provide better conditions for student experience and for student social growth. On the other hand, they are limited to quite a degree by the laws that are passed in the legislature and the ed code, which constrains what they have to do do. And each individual board member has almost no power. The power comes from the collective action of the board, whether that's a three, a five or a seven member board. So it's important to keep that in mind, especially now that we've moved to district elections statewide. In bigger districts, you've had trustees who are elected by a certain district, a certain portion of the city. It's been that way for a while. But in much of the state, probably the majority of the state, these district elections are new. So you no longer have trustees who are just representing the whole district at large. They're elected by a specific slice or portion of that school district. And you know that can create a tendency toward tribalism or just expecting your board member to only vote in the narrow interest of of your specific neighborhood. But I think all school board members and the people who elect them need to keep in mind that you do have to vote for the overall well-being of the school district and that you have to keep students first. Whatever particular ideology or partisan sentiment you may have, that needs to be secondary to the goals that we have for all students
0: the district addressing learning recovery and student support as we emerge from the triage state of the pandemic?
1: Learning recovery, I think the focus is on providing kids more time to learn, more different opportunities, more flexibility in the methods of instruction, and then also making sure that we're supporting students' mental health, providing some social support so they're in a position to learn. So it's kind of a two-pronged approach. you Attending to the trauma for the needs that have been created by the pandemic so that the kids are in the proper mindset, they're in a place where they can receive information, where they can learn, making sure that we're being more flexible, to provide different learning opportunities. One thing that the pandemic revealed to those who didn't already know is how central schools are, not just to the life of students, but to families and communities, and how when Schools aren't functioning in the normal fashion. That affects everybody's life, and it affects the community's ability to function. So having more opportunities like after-school programs that are available to a wide swath of the community, whereas previously, you know, they were income tested, a lot of districts are making those available to all students. So students have extra enrichment opportunities after the end of the normal school day. Schools have done the same with summer schools. We've seen a lot of expansion of summer programs. We're also seeing an emphasis on extracurriculars to keep kids engaged. Those extracurriculars can be a platform for learning as well as the more conventional academic classes. And they also have the added benefit of being some of the most popular offerings to keep kids excited about school. And of course, small class options for learning as well as what we call high-dosage tutoring, high-volume, intense tutoring, to try and make up for lost ground. Those are some of the approaches that we see.
0: What are the main challenges and opportunities for schools at this time? The main
1: challenge is to really focus on learning recovery, to make up for some of the lost ground that we saw during the pandemic, while at the same time attending to these longstanding issues around student achievement, particularly the large opportunity and achievement gap that are negatively impacting our low-income students, our rural students, students with disabilities and black and brown students, Native American students, even within the larger Asian American category, which overall is a very high achieving category. You have certain ethnicities, which are far behind the standard. So really focusing on those students who groups that have been struggling, trying to bring them up to par. That's probably the biggest challenge facing public schools beyond just overall student achievement. And then in terms of opportunities, I think that the additional visibility that public education has acquired since the pandemic, as well as the fact that there was this disruption that forced people to examine how we were operating and to try and conceive of new ways of community engagement, new ways of acquiring and retaining talent, new methods of addressing school culture, new ways of incorporating technology into the instructional process, and just examining every aspect of how schools run is in the long term going to be a revitalizing opportunity for our schools and it's going to allow us to break out of some models we had that have perhaps become routine, but maybe we're not best adapted to current society, the way families live now and the way students learn. So this is really a potentially transformational time for schools and that's the exciting part of this moment.
0: What do you hope to see from a policy and legislative perspective in twenty twenty three?
1: We're still defining exactly what our legislative agenda will be as we work through bill ideas, talk to potential authors, members of the legislature who would carry those bills down at the Capitol. But there are certain subject areas that we've identified that are going to be points of priority for us. One is mental health. Uh, That's an issue that our members have elevated to us, the school board members that we represent and superintendents. They identified mental health as the issue they feel is most important to advocate on over the next two years. And we're certainly going to follow their lead and, and take that issue up with the legislature. So Number one, increase mental health support. One, 1A, or number two, I would say, is increased resources for learning recovery, you know, with specific targeting for high-need students or districts which are disadvantaged financially. That's going to be key. After all, the fundamental goal of schools is to produce well-rounded, educated citizens who can be gainfully employed in society and be good members of the civic forum that we have so we lost ground to some extent on that during the pandemic and we need to redouble our efforts to make up for lost time so That's very important as well. We spoke earlier about the need for pension relief because that can release funds which can be directed to direct classroom investment. So it's important that we streamline and make sure that as much money is getting to the classroom as possible. Districts are laboring under the onerous employer pension contribution agreement that were made by the state and then shunted off onto the local districts. So some relief from the state there. So local districts I can put more money directly into the classroom uh, would be helpful. There's also the universal transitional kindergarten mandate that we spoke about. Every school district in the state is going to be required to have the universal transitional kindergarten options. That's effectively a new grade. So there's two key components of that. We don't know you're adding all these new students and a new grade. So you need to do what's called rebenching the funds that are set aside for public schools. Otherwise, you have the same pie and you're cutting it into more slices which means less money on a per-student basis, which means fewer resources for each student. So we would like the state to rebench Prop 98, which means expand the total pie of money available for schools to account for the new students we're going to have in the universal transitional kindergarten mandate. And in addition to that, money for the construction and renovation of facilities needed to accommodate these TK students, because as we mentioned earlier, you can not put those students in the same typical classrooms you have for older grades. They have to have a separate enclosed play area that's not accessible for the older students as well as ensuite bathrooms and some other special requirements that will mean you have to invest money in facilities repair or new construction. Cybersecurity is also an issue that our members have expressed concern about. There was a really high-profile hat of the Los Angeles Unified School District where their data was held hostage. San Diego has had some issues and many other districts that are smaller and maybe haven't generated the news coverage, but this is an area of vulnerability for schools, and that's something we're going to be advocating for help on at a state and federal level. And related to that, technology infrastructure, we made some big gains in terms of building out the schools in remote areas or low income areas that didn't have high speed internet that's needed to do modern education. But there's still a lot of work to be done in terms of getting kids home with high-speed internet. The way many schools are educating now, if you don't have high-speed internet at home, you're at a disadvantage to complete schoolwork, to do the research uh, needed to complete your assignments. So this is an equity issue, and it's a student achievement issue. We need to provide a platform uh, where all kids can learn and complete their assignments. So that's an ongoing concern for us. Obviously, inflation is a big issue, not only for schools but also for for the average person. So I think people can understand that the cost of doing business as a school has increased tremendously. So the cost of living adjustment in the upcoming state budget needs to reflect that the rising cost of doing business has increased substantially. So schools are taken care of and have the resources that they need to support kids.
0: I've been speaking with Troy Flint, Chief Information Officer for the California School Boards Association.
1: Any last thoughts for us? I would just say that the past couple of years have been a tumultuous time for public schools, but it really is a time of opportunity. While there may be some discontent in the short term and people may be struggling to come to terms with the increased visibility that schools have in public life, in the media, the fact that people are engaged is really encouraging because the worst thing you can have as it regards their children, as it regards students in public schools is apathy. So we welcome the input from the public. We realize, you know, sometimes that input will be delivered in a critical manner, but as school boards, you have to be prepared to receive that and try and focus on the core issue that the person has, their concern for students, their concern for schools, and try and isolate whether they have a legitimate critique. And if they do address that, the fact that we have so many people focused on schools right now is a tremendous opportunity to do some of this heavy lifting to get that broad-based public support that we need to move our schools forward. But school boards have to have an open ear, uh, keep an open mind, and make sure that everyone feels heard, be transparent about their communication, continue to build trust. And then over time, we will have a stronger base of people who are engaged in public schools who can press on legislators to get what we need, who can provide that support for our schools and our students to help reach our goals.
0: Thank you so much for speaking with us today and here's to 2023.
1: It's coming soon.